Welcome to All Rings Considered, a Lord of the Rings read-through. We are on episode 13, covering book 2, chapter 2, The Council of Elrond. And this is the longest chapter in the entire book, actually. And so to so celebrate... So buckle up! <laughs> <laughs> so get ready, because we got a special celebration in honor of this chapter. We're going to have our own council, and we tried to invite... What we thought was, you know, let's invite all our fans onto the podcast to have a council. And so we did that, and we brought our one fan, hey. one listener, onto the show. Uh, so please welcome our good friend, Dennis. Say hi, Dennis. Thank you. Longtime listener, first-time caller. Um, pretty excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excited to have you. Dennis has – he has – no qualifications that we don't have, but it's true. Uh, that's that's why we decided. You know what? Perfect guy to bring on. Yeah, it's a fresh opinion. You guys need the the, <laughs> the layman's opinion on occasion. So, um, anyway, it, so it, that's on theme, really. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is all about you know the the least of these having the least of us having uh, yeah the biggest impact. So we decided. You know what? Let's bring in. Well, you know, that brings us to this to this question. Someone has to do the summary for this chapter on this episode. Mm. And, you know, that's a burden I can't lay on anyone. <laughs> right. Well, I know I'm not I, brave enough to do this. I will take the summary, he said, though I do not know the way. <laughs> so <laughs> let me do go. Do you not actually know the content of the chapter? Because we kind of need to know that. <laughs> well, I will put it this way. Um, Given the fact that this book is just unreadable, and the fact that I have um, <laughs> very low literacy, this is it ends up being a good thing. So, but what are your um, thoughts on the Hobbit? Well, I'll tell you what. I had prepared to be on all wands considered a uh, Harry Potter read through, and this is um, a bit upsetting. So I'm just going to have to to wing it. So, um, speaking that didn't of... answer my question at all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that, that's a that's an added bonus. You have to pay to get that that opinion. Um, but you can go ahead oh. and check the show notes. So I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's go ahead and get into the summary of the Council of Elrond. So Frodo wakes up and he says, hello, good morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, Bilbo, so Bilbo meets Frodo. <laughs> Frodo has, has woken up. Yeah, you um, sure got us there, Dennis. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Frodo is now awake. He has basically survived what was referenced in a previous podcast. He survived death. He's kind of been reborn in this um, this safe space. So uh, Millennial Frodo is in his safe space. He's got <laughs> everything he needs. And um, he knows that the council is going to be occurring and Elrond is heading the council. Um, so Elrond summons everyone to this council. And you get a depiction of a couple introductions, um, many dwarves and elves and men and um, a wizard and some hobbits, and they're all kind of uh, discussing what has happened in recent events or in recent history, uh, because they all have different pieces of the puzzle, and they're trying to kind of create a common understanding of what what has going what has been going on. So um, <clears throat> they have a discussion about kind of where the where the ring came from and the beginnings of all of the problems, um, and Elrond sheds a lot of light on that, and we find out about Isildur and um, what I would argue is one of the bigger mistakes of the book, just being greedy and not not uh, throwing the ring away. So Isildur, uh, thanks a lot, buddy. We appreciate it. So now we find <laughs> ourselves here. And Gandalf, really importantly, brings up um, 
he provides a lot of context for where he was. So while he was gone, um, Frodo and at the and the crew were dealing with the five Black Riders. He's he's articulating where the other four were chasing him after he escaped from uh, Saruman's uh, prison, basically his little tower. So you you find this backstory, um, and the party kind of comes to the final decision of what do we do? Like what do we do with the ring? And they pitch a couple of different options and. I think everybody at the end of the day knows what has to be done. So that's where uh, that's where we leave off. Yeah. So Dennis, actually, that was that was pretty good for someone who hasn't read it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and can't there, read. There's one point though. I think I would I would I I have seen that the Frodo certainly has died, but I would actually not count that he has been reborn uh, yet. That's fair. I would that's I would fair. say that he's still kind of in this like heaven intermediate state between between lives. I, I mistook his cheerful hello as basically being reborn. So, wait, he did Bilbo. say hello because I thought you just said a second ago that he <laughs> no, didn't. It's technically Bilbo so that says hello. Frodo just says, "I feel ready for anything" and wants to go on a walk. And I figure only alive people can walk. <laughs> so, there, there's a counterpoint, Pip. Why don't you go ahead and put that in your pipe and oh. smoke it? Want to go for a walk, huh? Because <laughs> boy, do we have a. <laughs> we have a like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, we have we got something planned. So <laughs> Ron's just in the bushes, heard that, and said, "Well, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah." So uh, the style, we're like I said, we're actually going to sort of this is our own council of Elrond, uh, the three of us, <laughs> and we're going to do let's do this in the style of the council itself. We'll kind of go sort of round robin, and just each of us proposes uh, one of the topics we, we found interesting in the chapter. And I'll go ahead and go first if you guys have no objections. Yeah, go ahead. Um, sure. Cool. The first thing I want to talk about in the chapter is actually at the very end because I have a tendency to do that with these chapters is uh, think about the end first. But it ends with Frodo volunteering to take the ring. It's, it's a wonderful moment in the book. It's one of my favorites in all of the Lord of the Rings. I think it's a beautiful passage, very moody. And I'm just going to I'm going to read the paragraph here because it's it's so good. No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still, no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke, and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. That whole paragraph right there, by the way, is sort of blocked off the formatting of it. It's There's a white space above it and a white space beneath it, so it really sort of stands mm -hmm. on its own. Great sort of atmosphere there of the quietness, except the bell rings. What I love about it, though, is the paradox of Frodo feeling that overwhelming feeling more than anything else of wanting to stay in Rivendell and just stay in peace. Mm -hmm. And as right when he's feeling that overwhelming feeling is when he then says, I'll take the ring. What an interesting paradox, right? Like, wouldn't yeah. that be the time he is least likely to say that? Mm -hmm. But it actually turned out to be the time he does. So, and I don't know, what do you guys think about that? Like, is there something to that? Is there something to the fact that he, he volunteers to take it when he sort of least wants to? Absolutely, there is. And I think there in this chapter, there is, you know, this question of what is wisdom? And right after this paragraph too, Elrond is, is speaking and he says, 
Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? And I think there's, you know, an argument of what is being considered wisdom is just knowing what the right thing is at the right time. Like when when the time comes, you know, when the noon bell, you know, uh, strikes, do you know what the right thing to do is at that moment? Um, also like comparing it to the very beginning of the chapter because you get um, – all joking aside, one of the first things that actually the first thing Frodo says is Bilbo says, "Do you feel ready for the Great Council?" And Frodo says, "I feel ready for anything, but most of all, I should like to go walking today and explore the valley." Which we we joked about, you know, boy, did you sign up for something you may not be interested in, in completing? But he doesn't start with, "Oh, I just want to go explore this beautiful little valley and not go anywhere else." He says, "I feel ready for anything," and so it's kind of like this foreshadowing because he's going to finish this chapter signing up for really one of the most um, fearsome burdens that you could you could shoulder um, so that's like to, that that juxtaposition yeah uh, sorry what'd you say <laughs> <laughs> well no, and, and on top of that just to th this is a, t a, a a chapter of introductions of course and there's certain characters you meet and one of the my favorite introductions that you get is Boromir so Literally, you know, as we go through the, the character of Boromir, there's a lot of interesting um, analysis that you can do. Kind of his perspective is very valuable because he is literally on the front lines where everyone else is sitting here discussing, oh, well, how do we destroy this, this tool? And, and um, you know, you can see the frustration in his voice because he's seen many uh, people from Gondor die. But I love his introduction. Elrond turns to Gandalf, who, which is especially funny because considering how how un, how much Gandalf probably understands of the situation. He understands it better than most people. So Elrond introduces Boromir to Gandalf, but it's also for the benefit of the party. And he says, here, this is Boromir, a man from the south. It's just this very quiet, he's just a man from the south, which I find ex especially interesting because that to me supports this concept of the south is where there's conflict, where there's strife, where there's good and evil. But in reality, if you're outside of the south, if you're in these... Um, quieter havens, you don't, you don't necessarily even want to be in, in, uh, entwined with the the good things going on down there. It's just literally all problems. Um, and so he just sees this is Boromir. He's a man, so you get a little bit of context about him being good, uh, or at least fighting against Mordor, presumably. But he's just from the south. The south, what that's that's one of the areas that we're trying to um, solve. But what's interesting is that the south is civilization. Mm -hmm. We've talked about book one, and now we're in book two, of course, but we're still on the edges of the world, far from civilization. Boromir is from the heart of everything. That's where all the people live. That's where the cities are. So what a disconnect they have at the council to be a little bit like, oh, man from the south. He's their only delegate from the biggest kingdom in Middle Earth, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's the only one there from it. And they're just a man from the South. And he kind of um, invited himself to the party. Like, he wasn't even right. really invited. He's just like, I need to go get some outside perspective. Te technically, they all did, right? Like, yeah. Ron kind of makes the point that this wasn't planned. You all just happened to be here at the same time. That's That worked that well. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk. But uh, it is, yeah, there does seem to be a sort of, like, dismissal of Boromir. And Boromir even calls him out on it, too, right? Like, Gondor's been fighting and keeping everybody safe and there's a war going on and none of you seem to even know it and even we as the readers don't know this right this is our first time being told that the Lord of the Rings is actually not before the war it's in the middle of it it started 
Mordor's already been invading and has actually taken back a good deal of land uh, from Gondor. So the wars going on, the most we've seen as readers has been chapter one. I think some dwarves and elves were going to the Shire and we're like, oh, things aren't going so well in other parts of the world, but we didn't know what those were. And now it's we're, we're finding out it's a war. And it's actually, you know, Dennis, you kind of mentioned it's kind of like a funny sort of like, oh, this this dude, yeah, he's from down there. But it's, uh, I think there's actually some significance to it because all the other, you could say, like main characters, characters that are are introduced as as son of someone else. So Tolkien actually introduced mm-hmm. just the narrator introduces Gimli as son of Gloin. Legolas is a messenger from his father. Um, Elrond, when Aragorn throws down his sword and you know, uh, you know, says, "Oh, hey, I'm, I'm here." Um, Elrond says he is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Frodo is introduced as the son of Drogo, and everyone except Boromir. Um, and it's yeah. kind of this interesting. He's not the son of the concept of man in a way. Um, he is not the um, rightful son of men. Right, and so that's that's Aragorn. Um, but I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, just like I just want to mention this. I, I think it's really just amusing how um, Butterbur is brought up. Uh, that's again. my favorite. Just, that's one of my yeah. favorite it's lines. Just like, <laughs> Strider just he says like, um, uh, "I'm known as Strider to one fat guy who lives <laughs> who lives around no, here." No, he really had a problem with. <laughs> Fat people is kind of the way. But the, the, so there's it's just ripped on for that. I, I love I love the quote for I think it's Gandalf. Uh, he's talking about Butterbur and he goes, "Butterbur, they call him. If the delay was his fault, I shall melt all his butter." <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like it, it's just it's a cute, aggressive. Like, I will literally melt the butter that makes this fat man up. Like, and then Frodo's like, "No," and Gandalf's like, "Well." Don't worry, I was just slightly aggressive. <laughs> like, I just really enjoy that. Um, but thing, the topic I'll I'll introduce just because it's a nice transition. Previously, Charlie, you mentioned about the Lord of the Rings having this heavy theme of dealing with the sins of our fathers. Right. This, you know, because it's the chapter starts with Frodo meeting up with his father figure Bilbo, and then walking to this council where they are reconciling how the present generation is going to deal with the mistakes of the past and um well i just yeah. so that, to add a little bit so it's interesting because bilbo attempts to like take on the burden as a representative of the sins of the father's generation and he's told no he, he can't his his book keep the ending to your book the same continue to be a scribe but this can't fall on you uh, it has to fall to the following generation which kind of supports that that whole concept of like you, you, you the the new generation must solve it. Something interesting I was chewing on in the past week, since since Pip and I did the last episode, uh, where we talked about this theme, you know, at that point too, we talked about Bilbo last chapter talking about like Dolan Adventures ever have an end? I guess not. Someone else has to always carry on the story, and I think one of the cool things about the Lord of the Rings is that. Is that Tolkien was in this really neat position to to do that? He he was in this position where he had told the story, this good story about Bilbo, and then he was in a position to write a sequel and have that continue into the next generation. And it's not often I think that an author really gets into that 
point. A lot of authors have to sort of put the uh, the sins of our father's story as background detail into the book. And Tolkien actually was in the cool position that he'd already written the book. It was already done. So that really gets an extra level of depth to it, I think. It, it just, I mean, just for a comparison. So yeah. like Harry Potter. So Harry Potter, that the previous generation, always has to just be in the background. It's like a backstory within the book itself. There aren't books about Harry's parents and that generation of, of people, right? When Star Wars was first made, you know, this isn't true now, but when it was first made, you know, Vader's story was backstory. It wasn't, you didn't see it. You didn't know that that's what happened at first. And you had to kind of be told it through the movies. And so it makes it a lot more, at least a lot realer for us, I think, that we've had, that we got to read The Hobbit, see that whole story. It was already there. And then we get to read The Lord of the Rings and see it continue as opposed to The Hobbit just being backstory. And you know, The Lord of the Rings. That's, you know, there's another layer too of how, like what you're talking about, of how that adds richness because it's not just that there was, oh, okay, he wrote the story, there was like a prequel. It's that when we read The Hobbit, we're seeing the past through how a child understands, you know, what the events of the world going on. And then it, when it becomes their time, they look back on their memories of what their understanding of how things happened in the past and realizing it's not exactly what they thought. I, I really like, so there's actually a really interesting reference to The Hobbit because we've, we've sit here and talked about, well, The Hobbit's readable, Lord of the Rings isn't readable, you know, things like that. <laughs> but um, No, but in, in all seriousness, there's, um, there's a line, so um, they're basically discussing the state of the world um, and they get to King Brand and Dale, um, who, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I'm just making sure I'm on the right page, that's obviously the, the, the man at the, in Dale, right, and from The Hobbit. Uh, the, Make sure I got the reference correct. Right. Which which character? King Brand and Dale. Because no, um, King Brand. Yeah, it references. Um, for the shadow grows and draws nearer, we discover that messengers have also come to King Brand and Dale, and that he's afraid. We fear that he may yield. Because at least uh, Dale, the setting. It's the is sa- I mean, it's the same same location. Yeah. Dale. Yeah. Location. No, it's yeah. What? Uh, hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Though. Where I gotta like I gotta actually look at the Um It's Dennis, what page are you it's on? It's right after it's about a page after the Boromir reference. I'm on page two thirty five, but that may not mean anything to your to your book. Um and they Yeah. I'm not I'm not using the uh, the uh, authorized sixteen eleven King James version. <laughs> I don't recall there being a brand in the Hobbit. I don't know. Bard either. was the Yeah. Bard was the leader of the people or like he became the leader of the the people. Yeah, from Esgaroth, and um, I don't remember. I'll talk about. I I did. I just read through this, and I didn't even think anything of that. So, well, no, I have so, to do some research so, to see if that's like a relation or not. But it's not the same guy from the Hobbit. Yeah, I, I, the yeah. location though. So, but in in this little yeah. paragraph, he says, "For the shadows grow and draw nearer, we discover messengers have also come to King Brandon Dale, and that he is afraid. We fear that he may yield." And in like a very, very small section of this recalling of these stories, you get the Hobbit. But in, in reality, the threat is as significant or substantially more than, than what was faced in, in the Hobbit. It's like, and, and I read that as very much like Smog was a big deal. You know, he, he was he very, mm-hmm. obviously the whole book was written around, you know, the, the issues of that area. But now their threat is, there's not even an actual thing there. There's just threat and 
Dale basically, from what people understand, it is basically caved and said, you know, geez, I, I, we can't, we can't weather this. And it's like, that mm-hmm. should, that should be striking because the Hobbit was all about how they pushed through the adversity and got, and got to the end. Whereas here, like the, just a little bit peeks through that, that evil kind of crest the hilltop and Dale is like, no, thank you. This is, um, this is, this is truly, truly striking. And so yeah. I just found it interesting. The next, the next level. Yeah. That little, little reference back was like, you thought the Hobbit was scary, but they haven't even seen the evil and they're already shaking. Right. So. Well, and argue, it's interesting too, to think about what kind of evil have we seen so far at this point in the book? And is it different than what we've seen from the Hobbit? And it is right. Because so far we've only seen the black riders and I guess the barrel whites, who aren't explicitly aligned with Sauron, but mm. at the very least, even if you just take the Black Riders, the kind of evil we've seen has been not like big destructive dragon yeah. kind of evil, but this instead this really insidious, creepy, sheer terror kind of evil. Yeah, and uh, like that, like that's what that's it's it's, a, it's another level, I think. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, we talked too about the... the Lord of the Rings being more like psychological in a lot of its content, right? And I think that that kind of evil is more of a psychological evil than uh, Smaug was mm-hmm. from The Hobbit, which is more the sort of just destructive. Yeah, it's not that yeah. the, a dragon has been, you know, turned to evil, but, you know, the Black Riders are ancient kings that have been, yeah. you know, corrupted. It just represents that, like, degradation of of morality and, like, in people and not necessarily these mm. these truly by definition, evil beings that, you know, all good people should fight against. It's like, you know, this is, this is what once was good, what once knew love and life and now has kind of fallen to this, uh, this state of decay, um, which I think, uh, yeah, most people recognize as more terrifying because that could be an end state for any of us if, if you were to be taken by it. So, yeah. So um, where, where are we in this round, Robin? I think it's, I was about to say, I think it's up to me. I like it. So, Dennis, you just point at the camera as if we could tell <laughs> who you're pointing to. Uh, I think it's me. And what I wanted to bring up was something I like about this chapter is I like that Tolkien takes a lot of time to explore all the possibilities for what to do with the ring. Hmm. I think a, a lesser author wouldn't. Uh, Tolkien seems pretty thorough in how he thought about this. And I, I just like that they're pretty realistic about it, too. They say, hey, uh, why can't we go to the middle of the ocean and drop it off a boat and just let it sink? <laughs> or why can't we go give it to Tom Bombadil? He's not affected by it. So like he could, you know, couldn't he keep it hidden? And all these things get explored, save for maybe, maybe kind of not one possibility I'll mention in a second. But I think that, yeah, I think that's fun. And it shows a couple different things like about the, like how they're thinking about this ring. They, right, because the reason they reject some of these is that yeah, that would work in the short term, but all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. Mm-hmm. And do we really want to do that? Like, if we're going to do that, we may as well just die. Like, if we're going to kick the can down the road for it to inevitably be a disaster in the future, why don't we just have the disaster now? Like, what what good does it do yeah. necessarily to just leave it to somebody else? It also says something about the responsibility for where the responsibility falls for problems, right? So mm-hmm. there's a line that uh, Elrond is saying, But Gandalf has revealed to us that we cannot destroy it by any craft that we here possess, said Elrond. And they who dwell beyond the sea would not receive it. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth. It is for us 
who still dwell here to deal with it. So, you know, they can't take, they can't say, hey, uh, God, can you deal with this for us? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or throw it into the ocean. Forget about it. Uh, you can't, well, I love, your problems yeah. are here and you have to deal with them. Yeah, I love to. So one of the, the, the ignorant criticisms that's always levied against at least the films Oh, the Eagles. Why don't we just let the Eagles? And so that's addressed Yeah, here. well, I was going to mention them as huh. – well, but they're not addressed explicitly. Right. I think this is interesting. There's not an explicit discussion of the Eagles, but there is something here about maybe why they can't do it, right? Yeah, it, it harkens back to when – so uh, Gandalf is being rescued by the Wind Lord, and um, he says, how far can what's, you what's, bear what's me? What's his name? What's his name? Gwahir. <laughs> However you pronounce it. I just wanted to make you say that. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly no offense to the Eagle people. If you're listening to this, I respect your culture. Um, I just, I have a tough time with the pronunciations. But no, he, so he, Gandalf says, how far can you bear me? Uh, he, he says, and the, the Wind Lord says, many leagues, but not to the ends of the earth. I was sent to bear tidings, not burdens. Which I think is really interesting because it's basically an immediate, um, it, it, it blocks that, that easy out. Like, well, we'll just get the, the magical, not the magical, but like these giant eagle beasts. It's like, no, this is this is a problem of man, and to some extent, elves and dwarves. Like that, that that's where it needs to be solved with the the hobbits, and you know, it's it's not something that can be wished away in this very easy manner. So, well, and we've we've talked in previous episodes about with Bombadil, we were talking about nature's sort of divorced feelings toward this issue. Mm-hmm. And the eagles are kind of a part of that too. Of like, it's just not our problem. Even though they would be destroyed by it, so would Bombadil, so would the you know whatever. But they, there does seem to be this detachment they all have. Well, and that actually brings up a super interesting point about Bombadil, which we can go into in a second. Unless did you have something to add to the? Just one one thing, you know, an, another thing just to say about the whole eagle, like, oh, why didn't the eagles do it? Thing. Most of this discussion is usually his response is like, oh, well, they just wouldn't do that. But I also think there's like. A reasonable argument to make where, where that just wouldn't work. I mean, explicitly in this chapter, Elrond states that their uh, strength is that, or their one advantage is that Sauron doesn't even consider that they would even destroy the ring. That doesn't yeah. appeal to his mind. And so, if you get a host of eagles flying, you know, right to the the one spot where the ring can be unmade, that's one conspicuous, and it would give Sauron time to focus his power on you know defense of that area. Which, I mean, so I don't even think it's a, a good plan. Sure. But it is worth noting that Tolkien didn't explicitly address it. Mm. Like, maybe he didn't think about it. And he might not have. Yeah. I actually am not sure yeah. if he ever realized it as a possibility. But but there is still an explanation, in, in sort of in-universe suggestion here about why that wouldn't even be thought about at the Council. Yeah. It, it, the, the Hobbit gives some background on this, too, because the, the, isn't it in The Hobbit that... The eagles help out, but only because Gandalf says, because I saved Gwahir <laughs> at some point, and so he kind of owes me. Uh, not to say Gandalf couldn't cash in, I guess, for this point, this purpose, but still there's a little bit of background there of, like, the eagles are not just, uh, the eagles are not altogether selfless yeah. in how they well, behave. And it's and they also fall kind of outside of the purview. Like, um, we can transition into a discussion about Bombadil. Um, I found that to be extremely interesting because that this is the the, the medium that okay, we Dennis, consume this. Go ahead. Don't tell me what to do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I forgive you. I forgot that Charlie is his own master. 
anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I just really enjoy that. So the way, so sometimes you have to consume um, this type of a media uh, medium in like as 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 it appears on the page. So this may not be true of every variation, but the King James version of Lord of the Rings, the one I'm mm. reading from. <laughs> um, yes. No. So so literally at one point they. Um, they go through, and it's always interesting because it, when they discuss Bombadil, apparently you need to have all the clarifying, like, well, yes, his name's Tom Bombadil, but he's also foreign, and he's old, and he's also, and they go through, and he's Iwar Benadar, and like they have to give you all these backgrounds because he's known to so many people in so many different ways. Um, so you get that lengthy kind of introduction, and someone says, maybe I should have summoned him to our council, and Gandalf immediately says, he would not have come. And then my page, mm-hmm. it, it, like literally there's nothing below that. So it's very mm-hmm. terse. He would not have come. And then, you know, you continue to the top of the page on the next side. Uh, could we not have sent him a message? Could You know, it seems that he has a power even over the ring. And Gandalf says, no. So I say rather the ring has no power over him. He is his own master, but he cannot alter the ring itself nor break its power on others. And then one thing I really, really loved was having that discussion. Uh, he's now withdrawn. Um, and he talks about the fact that Tom Bombadil may have come to the aid if all living things had kind of cried out for him. Um, but it says that he would not have understood, which is really interesting because he, he's, he's kind of in his own little world, but he would not have understood why why this was bad because he's almost ageless. And it, it also compares him to the earth. You've addressed this in previous podcasts. It, um, it says basically, well, he has no ability to end this just like the earth wouldn't itself. I mean, unless someone can, can provide evidence otherwise, and there's no evidence. That conversation very... Oh, I'm sorry. Here's the exact line. Uh, the power to defy our enemy is not with him unless such power is in, it the, is in the earth itself, which no yeah. one chimes in and goes, well, I saw the earth defy our enemy. They're like, that's a good point. He's, he's kind of outside of this. Reinforcing that the burden of responsibility for this problem falls on agents and not so much these mythical, you know, representations of, of the, the earth. All right, I, I guess uh, I've got one more thing. So I've, I've brought this up before, uh, but the main way that I'm, you know, reading and interpreting the Lord of the Rings, you know, big picture theme-wise, is kind of an argument against utilitarianism. And that argument kind of breaks down into, well, that's all well and good if you can predict how things will go, but you can't. And so the um, what ends up being you know the best good is just doing what is right every time um, and not using what is wrong now as a stepping stone to a greater end. And so I think that's actually like a nice way of kind of looking at the like the text as you're like looking at how the ring affects different people. You get some like really obvious examples in this chapter with uh, Saruman when Saruman is lecturing Gandalf as you know uh, about aligning with with. Uh, the dark power, and he says, um, as the power grows, it's proved friends will also grow, and the wise, such as you and I, may with patience come at last to direct its courses, to control it. We can bide our time, we can keep our thoughts in our hearts, deploring maybe evils done by the way, but approving the high and ultimate purpose. And he later, he says some more things, and later he goes on to say, there need not be, there would not be, any real change in our designs, only in our means. And yeah, so I mean, it's it's basically an argument of of, against you know the ring representing uh abuse of power it's an argument against you know using abuse of power to achieve an end even if you think you can you know manage it for yourself you can handle the evil for now to to you know achieve what you know a, a greater good yeah absolutely 
Yeah. So unless anybody chew on that, it, it doesn't. <laughs> well, it, it, well, you know, I was gonna say you you get a couple of uh, people who take that opinion. You get one, you get Baromir, and then two, you get Saruman. So so you have these two point of views. One of which we we say is now like outright evil. Like Saruman is now totally turned. He's foregone. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but Boromir is not, even though he kind of has that same perspective, right? Interesting to see the nuance there about... And the importance of the juxtaposition, yeah. because some, I think Boromir yeah. need, needed to hear, it was fortunate that there was a person to provide the perspective, but he needed to hear that, listen, you, you are by no means a wizard of, of immense power, and even they cannot stand, um, withstand in their hearts you know, that desire and that overwhelming corruption that's associated with this. So what makes you think you could? Yeah, and so so just kind of you know bottom lining it for where like things that I'm looking for in these chapters uh, are I'm especially interested in places where it's not through a grand design plan of the characters that ends up with the greater good, but characters choosing to do what's right right exactly at the moment that ends up being for producing a, a good world. Mm. Yeah. Let's see. All right, it's my turn. Yeah, it is. But I don't. I. I. We've hit on all the big themes I wanted to talk about. I. I think for me, I only have left favorite line. I have Let's my favorite it. line as well. Have mine. Are we just ready? Okay. Yeah. Uh. So my favorite line is not even one I suspect sticks out to a lot of people, but it's. You know what? I'm actually gonna be. I'm gonna get a little personal here for a second, on this podcast. And it's there. There was a, a time in my life when I was reading this book, and I was just really. It's really struggling. And not a good time in my life. And I felt like at the time I was like, oh, I feel like I, I truly know what despair is like. And I used that word, I remember I, I would say, oh my gosh, I feel like it's actual, I'm, I'm an actual despair. And then I happened to be reading this book. And uh, I didn't, I, I was just reading the book. I was just reading it at the time for some reason. And I got to this point in this chapter where uh, one of the elves, I think it is, that says, yeah, he says, So thus we return once more to the destroying of the ring, and yet we come no nearer. What strength have we for the finding of the fire in which it was made? That is the path of despair. Of folly, I would say, if the long wisdom of Elrond did not forbid me. And then Gandalf responds to him, he says, Despair or folly? It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. And... Yeah. yeah, that end quote there, because that's what struck me. I had been going this this period of time saying, like, oh, I feel like I, for the first time in my life, I kind of, like, felt this really bad feeling of despair. And uh, then here I am just bumbling through this book, and all of a sudden I get, like, just spoken to me directly, like, <laughs> despair is only if you if you know what that what the end is, beyond all doubt, yeah. then that's despair, and you do not. And I just, it was just this like kind of wake up call for me. Like it really uh, spoke to me at the time. And so it's my favorite line in this chapter. And it's one of my favorite in the whole book just because of how much resonance that had. Even though I know it's kind of simple. Yeah. It hit me, it hit me at the right time. It hit me at the right time in my life. So ended up sticking with me. I dig it. What was your favorite line, Pip? Um, I think my favorite line here is when Elrond is remembering... Uh, his battle against Sauron. And he says, Thereupon, Elrond paused for a while and sighed. I remember well the splendor of their banners, he said. 
it recalled to me the glory of the elder days and the hosts of Beleriand. And or, uh, so many great princes and captains were assembled, and yet not so many nor so fair as when Thangorodrim was broken and the elves deemed that all evil was ended forever. And it was not so. Um, and I just, I, I, I just like that. One, because it's, it's kind of showing that there is a chain. It's not just the past and the present. It's like there is, oh, he embodied one part of the past and he himself was remembering a piece of the past again. And also that eternal conflict where it's that, oh, yeah, we beat one incarnation of evil and we thought it was over forever. Turns out, no, um, that's just something that is reborn. Because there's, you know, he's talking about a previous battle against evil and then and the one before that. And then there's one now and it's this, you know, eternal struggle. Yeah, so yeah. I like that. I like the word splendor. So Yeah. Me too. <laughs> well makes, makes me think of Splenda. Like, <laughs> like Charlie, I'm gonna pick a very uh, a lesser known it may not have stood out to some people. I just think there's a lot to it. You hipster. So yeah, I mean I can't help not being a hipster, but it's um <clears throat> One ring to rule them all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's that's not actually my favorite line. I, I, uh... <laughs> um, no, so my favorite let's line. Just, let's oh, uh, let's let's run a podcast. Like, okay, this person's going to give like a very like personal story. So, like, wow, you know the beauty of this splendor. And Dennis is just like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I actually have a real favorite line. I just wanted to say that because I thought it would uh, go over well. So, anyway. Um, so kind of going back to that uh, Sins of the Father and, and, and whatnot, that theme that we've explored a whole bunch, I really enjoy – so my major in college was English. Um, and so I've always really enjoyed the way words are kind of assembled into into these thoughts and, and the, the actual – the careful choosing of words to fit that. And so in this one, yeah, it's, it's almost called, – It's called writing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean you can write, but um, like for instance, everything I'm about to highlight in here makes this unreadable. You know, just – it's just it's beautiful. No, so um, what happens is uh, they're they're discussing kind of the the Gondor right now, and so um, they they quote. I think this is Gandalf talking, um, and, and he says, "So said Denethor, and yet there lies in his hordes many records that few can now read, even of the lore masters, for their scripts and tongues have become dark to later men." And I just the way that kind of in, in my head that just the beautiful like scrolling nature of of the way that prose is kind of assembled yes. um the the emphasis on hordes records and lore the they harken back to like the older english style of the the jaron the lore masters those who have mastered the art of telling these stories and the that struggle with hope and hopelessness of the fact that these old these lore masters and in, in the the manner in which they spoke and recorded the scripts and their tongues have become dark to later men, and that's where we are. We, we've we're, we're kind of the the light has gone out in on the past, and we can learn from it. But we we have to pivot now towards towards building our own lore from the experiences we're going through. So that just really really stuck out to me. Yeah, I think that would be not a Jaren. It's a, a Kenning, that's what I meant I think, to say. Right? Yeah, I'm sorry, Kenning was I was I referencing it, back to like the is Beowulf. that right? Like that's the it right. Is, yeah, when you take the two concepts yeah. and put them together with a hyphenated yeah. Yeah, Charlie, no, I, did meant, you I meant to say Kenny. Major in English. Uh, <laughs> in... <laughs> I apparently did. Yeah, right. I did oh, not major in English, so I should not dare to correct. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's good that you did because I don't want people listening to this and being like, well, that guy knows that Jaron is like running and swimming and hiking. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> <And> lore mastering. <laughs> lore mastering. 
we'll fix it in the post edit. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> no, that, I, I just really, really appreciated that line and, and the beauty of the way it's composed. Yeah, we've said so many times, and we'll say it so many more. Tolkien's just the master of writing these lines that just sound like poetry when you read them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the meter is always beautiful. I didn't pick up on what you point out there. The what is it? Is that I said assonance when it's like chord yeah. lord record. I believe it's assonance. Uh yeah, that was that's really really impressive stuff too. So yeah, beautiful stuff. Yeah, well, thank you, gentlemen, All for right. letting me uh, take part in this. I appreciated it. Well, you are not welcome, and uh, we will never do this again. <laughs> we'll not repeat. We need to have a sequel podcast about like making up for the sins of our fathers <laughs> and like, fixing all the flaws that the problems we uh, brought to the world by having Dennis yeah. onto. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we could hardly have this uh, this podcast when uh, Dennis, you were not invited, even though it was a secret. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and I'm going to create my own podcast read through that spoofs on a an NPR show, and I'm going to call it "Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me What to Do, Charlie." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's going to be good. Uh, no, this was wonderful. That's my line. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hey, I guess we should wrap it up then. Uh, good counsel, and. Uh, yeah, next week we are on episode 14. We're going to be doing book two, chapter three, uh, with the mesmerizing, wonderful title of The Ring Goes South. <laughs> to Boromir's house. I feel like that, like, yeah. I was like, Tolkien took it, taking a day off that day. <laughs> uh, what, what do I call this one? <laughs> well, they're going south. So I guess it's just The Ring Goes South. Beautiful. Done. So yeah, we will see you guys then. And Dennis, we, we do hope actually you could come on uh other times absolutely for sure absolutely i'd love to we we hope that happens yeah so uh we'll see everybody next week all right